back to Badwagon Fans. This is Jeff, and I am once again joined by Scott. And we are going to be talking about Ford v. Ferrari. Um, so we'll do a, we'll kind of go over the movie real quick, but this but we're more going to be talking about what we think the movie is about and some of the themes about it. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, I highly suggest you go out and see it. Um, or if you just want, if you're not going to go see it, you just want to hear people talk about it, then stick around because that's all we're going to do. We'll do it. So this is a this is a Ford B Ferrari starring Christian Bale and Matt Damon. Um, it is a based on a true story about a about um, well literally about what it, what it's in the title about the 1966 Le Mans and and the build up to it uh, mainly in Ford trying to change their image to capture a younger a younger market so they decided to go head to head against Ferrari who had been dominating the racing world up until that point and who they had attempted to purchase. Yes. So there there's a moment where Ford yeah. um is is rebuffed um rather rudely by Ferrari and so that's um presented as some of the rationale why uh Henry Ford second or Deuce as he's referred yeah. to in the movie Deuce um, why, uh, why Henry Ford uh, Jr. might have been um, pretty hot to try to get a car in and win at Le Mans. Yeah. And um, so we see, we, uh, we meet uh, John Barenthal's Leia Iacocca, who reaches out to uh, Carol Shelby, played by Matt Damon. Um, for a car enthusiast, that's Carol Shelby from the Shelby GT Cobra Mustang. And he and he's been working with Ken Miles, uh, a driver and, and uh, a test driver and race driver, and so they come in and, in short order, build a car that eventually goes up against Ferrari. So that's kind of the gist of the movie. Um, before we start getting into some of the themes, Scott, this is like right up your alley for really where you cut your teeth in in the film world, right? Yeah, I was, um, was thinking about it after we watched the movie. Um, I started my career working in uh, Detroit. I grew up in San Diego, but right out of college moved to Detroit, which was a little bit of a culture shift. And um, the, my first client was Ford. Uh, I worked for, actually worked for Ford for uh, quite a long time, um, along with other companies, General Motors, and eventually I think I've worked with all the domestic manufacturers. But as um, at that time, somebody working in uh, film and video production um, we did, uh, the company that I worked for did, uh, training films. So kind of mundane stuff, but also, uh, some sort of more, um, kind of flashy stuff that you'd see like at the auto show. In fact, there's a scene in, uh, Ford v Ferrari where, um, Lee Iacocca and his team are rolling out the new, um, Mustang, which in fact, Iacocca is actually, it's one of the things he was famous for at Ford before he got famous at Chrysler. Um, for being the person who really kind of pushed the Mustang through. And I was thinking as I was watching that, you know, the the, the date on that was probably 1964, I think, if I've got that right. Um, but, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, that's the kind of stuff that we were producing, those kinds of shows and bringing people in and showing them the new cars and the concept cars. And and then so a lot of the the Detroit ground in particular is, um, is pretty common. Um, there are scenes that happen in the... Um, on the executive floor at what they call the Glass House, which is Ford World Center, which I believe has been renamed, but when I worked there, we always called it the Glass House. And uh, they nailed that. And it's just looked like it was, uh, it was really a flashback for me watching that. It just looked, it, the, the sets were just spot on for what that place looked like. And I'd been up on the executive floor a few times. I was kind of a young buck, you know, 26, 27 years old. So I didn't spend a lot of time hanging around with the executives, but it was definitely up there. 
And then um, on the um, just the the craft of the filmmaking, um, putting mounts on cars and now shooting from drones. But back in the day, we were shooting from helicopters. You know, a, there's a lot of technique in this film uh, that is uh, that that I've had a hand in um, not creating. You know, really brilliant people created the technique, but that I over the years of work that I did in the auto industry, I really benefited from. So. A lot of um, it was really I, I thought really fun to watch the the car stuff and then yeah. kind of knowing a bit what goes on behind the scenes and actually having done some of that that was pretty fun to watch. Yeah, so I, I think I think we're both in agreement that overall movie was really entertaining, mm -hmm. well directed, well acted, incredibly well acted. Screenplay was solid. Yeah, I'd going I yeah. incredibly well acted. So yeah, from, I'd give it that from a pure from a pure entertainment standpoint, worth watching. We both we would both recommend it. But that's not what we're really here to talk about. Right. Um, what Sorry. I do, <laughs> what, what I do think is interesting is we, we and, and any time we start talking about these kind of historical movies, we always go back around to the discussion of how accurate it was. Whether or not that matters, it 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 seems it generally matters to me. I want if it's if it's based on a true story, I want to know if there's more truth than fiction to it. And it sounds like, at least on the aesthetics and some of the main facts we've been able to say that it is pretty accurate. And it was real people. I mean, they're yeah. portraying real people from Ford. They didn't make up Ford executives, but they used people who were actually executives at the time. So, so there's a, um, there, there it's rooted in, yeah. in, and it's rooted in real things that happen. Yeah. So, I mean, so the, you know, Carol Shelby really did win the Mans. He was the first American to win the Le Mans. Um, he really did have to retire from racing for health reasons uh ken miles really did die after being ripped off after being jilted from he finished second in the 66 le mans should should have actually won it but he intentionally held back um so all those things actually did happen where it gets kind of interesting where, where it starts getting murky is in the accuracy of the themes of the movie and whether or not they're pulling on 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 historical accuracy so we were we were talking about it last night coming out of the coming out of the theater and it's really, the entire time watching this movie, I felt like um, James Mangold, the, the filmmaker, was right, intentionally putting this movie right at the cutting edge of our current culture war. Whether, whether it's urban versus rural people, or uh, liberals versus conservatives, that this movie was positioned right... It had a V right in the middle of yeah. it. <laughs> and, 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 but... Going back over the movie over and over again, I'm not entirely sure where he came down on it, and that might be to his credit or maybe not. Because, but it 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 was hard. It is hard to kind of ascertain. Um, well, first of all, do you agree that it was positioned in within our with our within our it, current yeah, culture? Yeah, I I think um, uh, first off, I believe that it's impossible not to position any any piece of art sort of directly in the culture somehow. So that sort of just naturally happens. But I think there was some intention. Uh, to that as well and there was a bit of a um the um the rugged individualist uh going up against the sort of the um the social function of the corporation yeah we had talked about that and that and that that's definitely one of the themes that comes through and it's, it comes through early when when they're comparing the ford the ford factory that and you see this in the trailer the ford factory the ugly factory that produces ugly little cars by made by a fat man Compared to the Ford, compared to the Ferrari factory, where every part of the car is handmade, right? right? In, in, you know, so there's that, there's that kind, there's, there's clearly that distinction. And then 
at the very end of the movie, I'm not sure if you caught this, but after after it was obvious that Ferrari had lost all their cars and, and during the race, there was a moment where Enzo Ferrari looked down at um I'm not I don't remember if he looked at Carol Shelby or if he was looking at Ken Miles, but I think he was looking at Ken, Ken Miles. Miles and just kind of tipped his hat to him. Right. Like they like there was a mutual respect right. there. Like so in a sense, it was Ford versus Ferrari. But it was also just as much Ferrari versus It was Shelby, Shelby versus Ferrari, Shelby versus Ford, and Ford versus Ferrari. And, and even though Shelby even though Shelby and Miles were racing against Ferrari, right. in some ways they were more closely aligned with Ferrari and, and, and Ferrari's values than they were with Ford that, that who they were working with. Right. It was like a really weird love triangle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um so that so all that was really interesting, but then as I started thinking about it more, it was. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much it was just an individual versus a corporate structure. I mean, that was clearly there, but he never really leaned really hard into the ind, into individual. It always stressed that there was a team at work. Mm -hmm. So it was more. It was more the way this team functioned versus you know the the Shelby's team functioned versus Ford's team. And so I mentioned it to you last night, and I think it has I think it has more to do with the central theme of the movie is more about types of knowledge and how people utilize that knowledge. And in one hand, you have an experiential knowledge that you get by working with your hands and through years, decades of experience of actually working on something versus the more academic experience that you get in a corporate culture where um, uh, certifications and degrees are more important than work history. Right. And I think if there is one central conflict in, in Ford v. Ferrari, I think that's it. Yeah, a couple of things occurred to me. Um, one, uh, this this may be the only time ever on a podcast or in a video that I'll mention Ayn Rand, but you know, it did occur to me that there's this certain sort of energy with the Ken Miles character in this um, in this movie because he's willing to walk away. He has sort of a John Galt thing going or Howard Rourke probably thing going on and um he's he's one of those people he's sort of blessed with this supernatural skill when it comes to racing they never say that they say it comes from experience and stuff but he's clearly just better than everybody else and you I, I in real life who knows but in the, in this movie there's a mythology around this right. guy and then what happens is um and even Carol Shelby in the movie has is part of this sometimes is Everybody sort of conspires not to, like, nobody's trying to kill Ken Miles. And nobody really even wants him not to race. They just don't want him to be that good. Yeah. And and one of the reasons they don't want him to be that good is he's not the book-learning guy. Right. He's the guy who figured it out by figuring it out. It's it almost, so, so the way you're describing that, it actually reminds me of uh, Harrison Bergeron. Do you remember that story? Uh, uh, I don't. So, so Harrison Bergeron was a was a Kurt Vonnegut Jr. short story, where the country had had like, I think it was like 125 or 130 amendments to the Constitution, <laughs> all all to promote equality. So, if you were particularly beautiful, you had to wear a grotesque mask. If you were really strong, you had to wear extra weights. And Harrison Bergeron was the most wanted person in this community because no matter what they did, he just kept excelling. <laughs> So it was all about it was all about in order to promote equality, in order to promote equality or unity, it really depended on bringing people down to the lowest common denominator. And there was a lot of that going on in Ford v Ferrari. That's a lot of yeah. that. And 
interestingly, um, you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a race fan, but I've covered races over the years and um, have been behind the scenes when some things like, like there's a thing that happens in Ford v Ferrari early on where um, Ken Miles' car at Willow Springs. This is way before anybody's even thinking about Le Mans for him. Um, his car is disqualified because his trunk is off by some tiny amount. You know, it'll carry less than it's supposed to, or whatever. And I've actually like seen that happen, where there, you know, there are engineering types out there with calipers measuring, you know, the shape of a curve or something on the body of a car, and like shaking their head, and the car goes back in to get like you know pounded out and brought back out again. And so in in this in 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 when you think about something like auto racing that to the people who watching appears, let's say kind of pure, you know, it's like you have to be like, really, you have to have a great car and be really skillful and have a great team. And like, if those three things are all firing together, and if your team is the best and you're really skillful and you got the best car, you're probably going to win if something bad doesn't happen. And like, that just seems like, I mean, angels should sing, right? When that kind of thing happens. And and the movie's a lot about people trying not to let that happen, like trying to actually do whatever they can to kind of put sandbags in the trunk of, not literally, but to like make Ken's car not as fast, to just not him be, have him be this superior kind of guy that, that, according to the movie, he is, the character in the movie is, regardless of what that was like in real life. Yeah, as you're talking about it, I also was getting, I was getting flashbacks of Harriet. Okay. Because they're, they're you, you haven't seen Harriet, but there's, they actually, they didn't just imply, they, they literally said that she had like premonitions. So if they were fleeing through the woods, she would have a vision and she'd go, we have to go left. It's like she just had a, a premonition of, and she was able to outmaneuver everybody. And the, the Ken Miles was just, just short of that. But, had, but yeah, he had an uncanny knack of, um, knowing exactly when to shift, when to turn, that, that just nobody else has. Buddhists will love this movie and mindfulness practitioners because there are moments where, um, like, what happens is when they, he hits 7,000 RPMs, sort of everything stops. And everything for him kind of slows down. The sounds go away. And the filmmakers kind of take the sound down. And he becomes very sort of zen-like at that part so that his his shifting and stuff like that is becomes very natural. Like, um, uh, there's a writer, writer named Chicksamahali who writes about like flow state. Like this is very flow state or Malcolm Gladwell would talk about a flow state. I mean, he gets into the, he's, he's driven enough that he gets into the flow state. And I think that that stuff in the movie is really fun. It's yeah. really our, you cannot help you. You could hate this movie, but I really can't imagine anybody still not rooting for Ken Miles right. in this movie. You are really rooting for Ken Miles in this movie. Yeah, he's almost, he's almost like the baby seal. Yeah. You can't, or or for 2019, he's like Baby Yoda. Yeah. It's impossible to root against Baby Yoda. It's impossible to root against Ken Miles. Right. No matter, even when he's being, even when he's at his most jerkiest asshole state, you can't root against I, him. I'm neutral on Baby Yoda, just so you know. There, There is no neutral on Baby Yoda. <laughs> you just haven't even seen it yet. Um. So um, we alluded to this before, but I, I just wanted to kind of clarify it might be worth talking about, or at least just worth saying. The one of the places where the movie gets kind of muddled is that you're you're sort of always rooting for and against the Ford executives. 
that we looked at the end of the movie to see right. if Ford had anything to do because I couldn't. This movie could be a real puff piece for Ford if it was done a little bit differently. Yeah. So, but what, they don't end up looking. They don't end up looking amazing. They end up kind of looking human and a little flawed. Yeah. So there's so within the structure. So we were talking about the the triangle, the Ford, Shelby, Ford triangle, and of those three elements, Ford takes a bath in this movie, and there there's three people. There's Lee Iacocca. Um, played by John Barenthal, and then you get um, Henry Henry Ford Jr. or the or the second, right? I think it's Two. the second because yep. yeah, Deuce, yeah, and then and then uh, somebody some BB guy. And I, sorry, um, Leo Leo BB played by Josh Lucas, and Lee Iacocca probably take gets the best treatment in this movie, but he also just comes off as passive aggressive and doesn't. Even though he's rooting for Ken Miles and Shelby, he actually does absolutely nothing to help them and just right. he's not helpful at all. Yeah. And then BB is just like every conniving corporate shill, you know, that you can possibly imagine. And then and then Ford himself comes off as uh just a reactionary rather than a visionary, just a fat guy and executive who inherited his father's company and doesn't really know what to do with it. Right. And is relying on people much better than him. So yeah. And so he's was, kind of a kind of a screamer, and I don't know yeah. if that was actually the the case with him. I, yeah, I, I'd have to learn more about him to know. Yeah, so so we were we were trying to look up to see if if Ford had any any involvement in this movie, and I I would say no, they didn't, because they really came across it looking terrible. And I think they would have <laughs> absolutely it terrible. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to say about Iacocca, um, and and this will be it'll be interesting to see. It'd be interesting to hear what other people think too. I don't think that most people, most people are going to see that the director meant for Iacocca to be a sort of a positive and helpful character. He just didn't give Iacocca anything to do right. that was positive or helpful. Every time something positive happens for Ken Miles, Iacocca is kind of looking off to the side going like, you know. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah he's given. That's why I said he was passive aggressive because yeah. he was he was clearly he was clearly brooding for Miles and Shelby. Right. Just never did anything to confront BB or, or Ford, right. to, you know, it, it was just a weird, there, there was one scene early on where, where he, it was his idea from the beginning to do this race team. Right. But he never, but after that, just, he no makes way. a phone call. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the most he does is at one yeah. point he calls Shelby just to say that BB and, and uh, Ford, the second or deuce are coming over yeah. and that they're going to want Ken miles relieved really, and yeah. so they so shelby has to come up with some basically locks bb in a room yeah which i doubt that really happened but probably, probably not yeah um so that was one of the two questions i had that i wanted to talk to you about the second one is and we're, we're going to kind of take a step back from the movie itself and just why this movie now why does this story why is this story getting told now that's a great question um i don't know um, I mean, part of it is, can I just say, I mean, it's a really good story. It, it really, it, it, it has like all of the story elements that you want. I mean, there's some ambigu ambiguity in the middle and things that get cleaned up. It's also one of those stories where um, probably most of the people in the theater don't know the end, but it's easy enough to figure out the end before the story starts. So it's one of those, it's just like sort of how do we get from here to there? Because they're not going to. 
misrepresent statistical history. They're not going to say, oh, he didn't win. I mean, you you know that he came in second. All you have to do is just check. And then probably a lot of people sort of suspend their disbelief and just drop that. But I think there's a um, the, the, that sort of mythology that's around these different people. I think it, it, it has a place sort of in the zeitgeist right now. Um, I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're in the middle of these impeachment hearings. And I promise not to get political, but it, it's interesting that we're looking in these, in these hearings, we're looking for like here, we're looking for heroes. Um, and people are, depending on where they are in the political spectrum, they're looking at all sorts of different places, but, um, they want to, they, they want to find people to elevate and maybe we always do, but this movie definitely elevates a couple people to mythic hero status that you've heard of. Like you, you heard of Carol Shelby and you heard of the Shelby Cobra and maybe you heard of Ken Miles, but you probably didn't. But now there are two people. If that, you were alive in the eighties, you definitely heard of Lee Iacocca. You definitely heard he of Lee He was on Iacocca. like every Chrysler commercial. Right. Yeah. And was part of that whole sort of, you know, bailout and all yeah. that. So yeah, he was, um, yeah. Well, well-known guy. So those people, um, are rejuvenated in a way. I mean, they've sort of gone quiet. And so you took three people when you made this movie that not unlike, um, Freddie Mercury or not unlike even, um, uh, Elton John in a way, take somebody who's not really sort of where they were in the public eye as much and then sort of rejuvenate them and push, bring them back forward. And, um, maybe it's a way of sort of an easy way to create some heroes fast that people will actually believe in and they'll believe in them because they are real people, whether or not the narrative of the movie is, is accurate or not, it will give people something to believe in and they'll believe that that's real, not like a Marvel universe, great heroes in a Marvel universe, but you can walk out of that theater. Very few people are going to think that that actually happened. Yeah. So I was I'm just and I'm, I'm kind of just spitballing going out on a limb here, which I want to do. But so we I think we would both agree and anybody who watched this should agree that this is a throwback movie. This is a movie about when when men were men and men and men were men who stood for something and cars were there for a purpose other than in being environmentally friendly transportation. Right. And and of and of of all the characters in the movie, Ken Miles is the most throwback in this throwback movie that most represents that aesthetic. And then he dies at the end. So I wonder if if that isn't why this movie is being told right now. As like this is it is it the last vestiges of somebody screaming to get that back? Or is that somebody acknowledging and when I say somebody, I'm talking about James, probably James Mangold, is this the acknowledgement that that era is dead? Mm-hmm. And we're not going back to it. Mm-hmm. So and I'm kind of curious. One, do you agree with that assessment? And then where we, where do you think the film, if, if you agree, where do you think the filmmaker is coming down on that? Is he, trying to re, is he trying to reach back and yank that back? Or is he telling the audience, no, it's gone. It's time to move past it. You know, whether Mangold has Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces sitting next to him on the desk while he's kind of conceptualizing this movie, he's definitely influenced by that kind of thinking. I mean, we've talked about this Ken Miles. I, and, and I will say, Ken Miles in this movie is portrayed in a way that, that I think would be impossible to live up. It would be 
you know, yeah. I doubt I doubt the real Ken Miles. If somebody said you need you need to be that guy, you know, reincarnation, you're coming back around. We need you to be that guy. Would be like, oh, that's going to be really difficult, you know, because I really wasn't that cool, right? Um, but the sort of purity of that guy. He loves his wife. He loves his son. There's no like, there's no philandering sexual stuff in this. There's no like, there is nothing. The only thing that takes his eye off of his wife and his son is driving. And it's because he is born to drive. And that's the caveman. He is as pure a role model in a, in a completely different way that Mr. Rogers was. Yeah. It, it, within I the context of this movie. Not, yeah. not, we don't know if he is this way in real life, but the right. way this movie portrays him, he is as right. pure, not as pure as a driving slow. He is as pure as an oil stain right. could possibly be. As Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Shelby's not. There were a couple times. I was really surprised in the film. There are a couple times that Carol Shelby in the film does some like really ungentlemanly things that are just kind of like just him sort of being a dick, actually. A couple times he's just kind of messing with the Ferrari guys, like steals their stopwatches, you know? And maybe that. He's, actually, a, he's a trickster. He's a trickster. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I thought, you know, that actually, but that kind of in a way doesn't allow him to be the hero that Ken Miles is because Ken Miles is pure. Like yeah. he's, his heroism is in shifting and his foot on the accelerator and his foot on the brake and this sort of melding at 7,000 RPM that he does with his car where he, like once he has the car where he wants it and he's part of the design, he's mechanic, he's working on it once he has it. And once it hits this certain place, he is just in this sort of blissful. Yeah, we had a small little technical difficulty there, so we're coming back. We're back. Yeah. So, um, you you were saying? Yeah, I'll just um, I, I can in in the little gap that we had, I figured out a way to say it a lot right. faster. Okay. And that's that. I I can see this movie being taught in um not just film classes because there's some really good filmic stuff, and I don't think it's a brilliant movie, by the way. I mean, I think it's a pretty good movie. But I can see this um, also being taught in um, literature classes if if you were looking to sort of break down pure characters. Because there's some, there's some really representational characters in here that we see in all kinds of literature and all kinds of film. And they're just done really well in this movie. And the acting is really good. So it's really a joy to watch them. Yeah. It re- so on the one, on the one hand... From a purely entertaining standpoint, this movie was entertaining. We've we've covered that. It was just really fun to watch. Um, one thing that one thing that you know, what part of my thesis, why I want to do this, why I want to talk about movies is, anytime somebody says it's just a movie, it doesn't mean anything. That's not true. There's the a movie like this probably had a minimum of two years of production from. Whether you're start whether you're starting to write this from starting the screenplay to the pre-production to actual filming the movie, um, and the people that are involved in this, they know the history of film. They know how to speak in a film language. So, anytime some anytime a um, um, a movie like this with this on this kind of a scale is done, it means something. And then it's up to us to kind of try to decode what that really means and then what we think about that. So. Can give you a really simple example yeah. of that from the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we here in a, in the United States, and um, actually around the world now, um, we all know that in westerns, hat hats matter, mm. right? 
and this movie, Shelby and Ken Miles, each have each wear cowboy hats, but they're different cowboy hats, and they each wear glasses. The glasses are different glasses, but the hats in particular like tell you everything that you need to know about the character without having to know anything about the character. It's it's funny that you mentioned that example. So earlier earlier this morning, I was watching um, on YouTube the, the Wisecrack channel, okay. and they do um, Wisecrack is absolutely brilliant. If you ever want to, if you ever want to just watch a channel and to just see a really interesting film analysis take, Wisecrack is great. And they were doing a video about um, No Country for Old Men, mm. and one of the first things one of the one of the first things they pointed out was. Um, Oh, who was the sheriff? Who played the sheriff? Um, yes, the the craggly faced guy yeah. from Men in Black and yeah. many other movies. Yeah, just playing my name, but yeah. he had the white hat, right. and that was one of the first things he pointed out. Like he represented like the classical good guy sheriff wearing the white hat, and then and then how the movie just kind of shifted. From a traditional Western to a film noir, right? And and a lot of things were established just by what people were what people were wearing and the color of what they were wearing. That's the that's really you know one of the one of the things that's brilliant about filmmaking that um, you know so many people don't recognize that they are being affected by these symbols that they see uh, when when they watch a movie. And it's part of what makes them have like this great time when they see a movie. They know, you know, there's a reason that Darth Vader is black. You know, wow, that's my second Star Wars <laughs> today. Um, you know, there's a reason that Darth Vader looks like Darth Vader does and wears the color that Darth Vader does. And there's a reason that other color characters wear other colors. And it's because it's sort of like it it signals certain things to us. And sometimes actually, you know, we've looked at some of those choices down the road and saying, well, you know, maybe having black sacrifice or having black stand in for, you know, evil and malevolence and stuff like that. You know, maybe that's not such a brilliant idea since there are people with dark colored skin who probably don't want to be thrown into the same pot. But those are very strong associations that we have. So for those of you that don't know, we also have a podcast with uh, with our, our friend Renee Beebe where we um, called What the What? Um where we where we talk where we just have these kind of discussions, but some not necessarily tied to any particular film, but definitely about media and culture. And this might actually be a, a good topic for us to this cover. This would be a great topic, S- specifically the language of film and how the language of film translates to an audience that doesn't speak that language. Mm-hmm. So you you actually went or to doesn't film. know they do. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yeah. You went to film school, so right. you know the language. Right. So. I, I would I would suggest that there is a film language, and if you know the language, it affects you. But if you don't know the language, it doesn't necessarily affect you. So much the same, much the same that you know, if you speak Japanese and you hear Japanese, it, you get its meaning, whereas I get absolutely nothing from it. Right. And it's it's it it'd be it's an interesting discussion of how much the language of film translates to somebody who doesn't actually. Who wasn't brought up to to understand what that means, and and it's you know how much of that is sort of meta narrative, the big like, you know the 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 big picture that you stand back from the movie and watch, yeah. you know. So the clock on the wall, there's a shot of the clock on the wall, and it says that it's nine sixteen. 
that's there for a reason. Yeah. And that's part of the language. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of wrap this up, but there's I think the take home lesson that we just hit on is two things. One, things in film are rarely accidental. Sometimes they are. Sometimes it was just a matter of a uh, prop guy go out and buy something, and this is the only thing the prop guy could find at three o'clock in the afternoon right. wherever they were filming. So Been sometimes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So sometimes things really are just accidental. Right. But you should, we should always assume that things in films are intentional and then try to work out what the intention, what the intent is. Except sometimes in editing, where there are more accidents and things that get cut together sometimes that okay. somebody didn't think about that. But the placement of things in the frame, very intentional. Yeah. Wardrobe, props, stuff like that. Somebody had to think about it and put it there. Yeah. And no matter what the movie is, you can take it apart and analyze it. You know, a lot of people are going to watch Ford v. Ferrari and they're thinking it's just going to be about a, just a movie about race cars and and they're only going to get at that level and that's fine. Yeah, it can be. But, it can be that movie. Yeah, but no matter, you know, Die Hard could be that movie. But no matter what it is, the, there's too many people working on these for too long with too much knowledge behind them for, for there not to be some kind of messaging being put across. No matter what the movie, even if it's something like Dinosaur Island, which I I've never heard of. It's, it's, <laughs> but now I kind of want to see. <laughs> it, it would be really hard to track that movie down, but I, I have fond memories of that movie. <laughs> so anyways, so this was, uh, this was uh, uh, our discussion about Ford v. Ferrari. Hope, hope you stuck through the whole thing and enjoyed it. If you haven't seen the movie, um, I, I would suggest you go out and see it. Yeah. And so you actually know what the hell you were just listening to for 30 minutes. Um, and... As always, like and subscribe to see more videos, see more content from us. Do that. And uh, leave a comment below what you think about what we had to say, what you think about the movie. So once again, I'm Jeff. Scott. Get on the bandwagon.